You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We're going to be reading from John chapter 4, verse 46 to 54. So that's John 46 to 54. Sorry, four, chapter 4, verse 46 to 54. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all your holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may by such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, John chapter 4, from verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks be to God for his word. Thanks be to God for compassion. How amazing to hear of that ministry. Thank you, Michael, for sharing. Is he still here? That must be like six kids for him now. He's got a lot of kids. um, God's strength be with him. Well, my name is Grant, one of the lay elders here, and it's my privilege to bring God's word this morning. As I was coming up the stairs this morning, someone said to me, you're not wearing your Crocs. I said, I'm preaching. I can't wear my Crocs. So I've got some proper shoes on this morning so I uh, I can preach. Well, if you're joining us today, we're continuing our series through John's Gospel, The Seven Signs of Jesus. As Christmas approaches, you know, the name of Jesus gets more airtime, carols, you know, there's more said about Jesus. And as God's people, as Christians, as we approach Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Christ, it's really important that when we think of Jesus, what fills our hearts and minds are full biblical expressions of the person, the work, the identity of Jesus. And that's what this series is about. You know, I remember in our high school English, my teacher uh, giving us an assignment. We had to identify literary conventions and techniques that authors use to, you know, express the narrative. Sounds very fancy, but John, he, he does that very clearly. He uses a literary convention or technique to explain who Jesus is, and that technique is using signs. He arranges his gospel account 
by these signs, another word for miracles. All right? And so each sign for John isn't an end in itself, but rather points ahead to who Jesus actually is. So as we ask this question, who is Jesus? John wants us to see who he is by seeing what he has done in these great signs. And so last week we began uh, looking at the miracle in John 2 of Jesus turning water into wine. This week we move forward two chapters to John chapter 4 uh, to see the second sign that Jesus performs. And before we get there, I want to uh, just share a little bit, just kind of set the scene, set the context or the emotional tone uh, for the passage before us this morning. On the screen there should be a picture. Boom. That's my eldest son, Jude, looking a lot smaller. And look, it's quite a sad picture. He's in an ambulance. And uh, this time, he just got, he, had, he developed COVID and we had to take him into hospital. The problem wasn't as much that he got COVID, but the problem was he had this, he had asthma, essentially. Now, if you're a spiritually specialist out there, I know it's not called asthma until you turn five. It's reactive airway, so apologies to the medical professionals in the room. But essentially, for, for ease sake, let's say he, he has asthma. All right, this was the second time he'd been to hospital. This particular time, he was young, he was under two, so he's in his cot. And you know, my wife Amelia and I were kind of watching him, listening. He's asleep, but his breathing is laboured. His respiratory rate is, is really high. You can see he's working real hard to breathe. He's sick. He's got a wheeze, an, an audible wheeze. And it's, you know, it's pretty shocking to see your son in that state. And so we called the ambulance, the paramedics came, and they were pretty concerned about him, so, so he and I jumped in an ambulance and went off to the children's hospital. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't the only time this happened. Across the sort of 12 months from when he was like one and a half, I think, to two and a half, every month he would get some sort of bug, some sickness that would lead us to go back into hospital. He would develop this wheeze, an exacerbation of his asthma, and he'd be struggling to breathe again. And looking back, it was, it was quite traumatic, really, and really tragic sort of seeing your son just struggling to breathe. Every time I'd be in hospital with him, I remember going through a similar thought process. I mean, it was obviously confronting and really saddening to see your son struggling so much. But I'd often kind of think, as I was sitting there with him, how amazing that we live in a, a time where there's medication that can help my son. You know, we've got things like steroids, prednisone, to, to open lungs. Uh, we've got medications like Flexitide and Ventolin, these drugs that he now uses to kind of keep his lungs healthy. I'm sitting there thinking, how amazing. If it was even just 100 years earlier, a simple exacerbation of asthma could claim your life. And then I think to myself, wow, imagine 2,000 years ago. Imagine living 2,000 years ago, having a son who was super ill, so ill he was going to die. We don't need to imagine that scenario because that's the scenario we find ourselves uh, looking at here this morning in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. So turn with me to John chapter 4, as Mel read earlier, from verse 46. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work digging into our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word that is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, we pray this morning, by the power of your Spirit, you would do that work. You would expose us, that you would teach us, that you would strengthen our wills, that you would soften our hearts, and you would sharpen our minds. And we pray you would do all of this for the sake of the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, th three things we need to see in our passage this morning. Firstly, a desperate plea. Secondly, a powerful promise. And thirdly, a saving faith. So firstly, a desperate plea. Pick it up in verse 46 with me. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Throw back to last week. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It's important to see here the severity of the boy's condition. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus will heal people with more chronic conditions. Think paralysis, leprosy, um, deafness. All right, but what we have here is a boy who has an acute illness. Verse 46, it begins by saying that he was ill. You know, there's varying degrees of ill, right? A couple of days off school, ill, or really ill. Well, verse 47, it escalates pretty quickly, right? He's at the point of death. Later on, we learn that he has a fever, we said in verse 52. And so it's likely this boy has some infection and that it's spreading. Perhaps he's suffering from sepsis. Okay, we know this is a critical condition. All right, this is not a Panadol and Nurofen type of illness or fever. This is an ICU admission type of illness. It's important to kind of get our minds wrapped around that. Now it goes with that saying in the first century, there's no intensive care unit, right? But this is the severity of the boy's condition. It's really important we see that and grasp that as we move through the rest of this passage. The other thing we have to see is who is this official? So we meet a son and the son's father is an official. And it's interesting because John doesn't actually tell us the official's name. He doesn't introduce him by his name, but rather his occupation. He is an official. Now, why would John do that? Well, he got asked the question, what does the, the word official actually mean? Because I didn't know. <laughs> okay. So the actual Greek word official, it means connected to a king or connected to king, connected to royalty. And there's broad agreement amongst the commentators that it's likely this official was working for a king of the area. Now, who was the king at this time? In, in Galilee, it was Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, we know from the rest of the Gospels about this king and the rest of history is that this king, Herod Antipas, was not a good king. He was a wicked king. He married his brother's wife. He killed John the Baptist. And this man, the official, is in service of that king, King Herod. Commentators sort of differ a little bit, but there's some broad agreement that it's likely this official was a Jew. Here's why it's important. Because he's gone from serving Yahweh at some level, the true and living God, and he's given that up to serve another king, King Herod Antipas. And the Jews will not have looked upon that favorably, right? That the, the Jews are under Roman rule at this time, under the thumb of the Romans. They do not like the Romans. And then this official has in some way left the faith, left serving King Yahweh, and now serves King Herod Antipas, this wicked King, a really important detail to see there, right? Now, here's why that's significant. Because at one level, it's expected. It makes sense. There's a father. He's got a sick son. He hears of this person who has a reputation to work miracles, Jesus. He's come to town or, or close to town. We'll get to that in a second. And it's a fairly natural response, right? My son's on the point of death. This guy apparently can work miracles. I'm going to go and hedge my bets. So at one level, we could think, yeah, it's, it's a fairly natural, expected course of events. But when we appreciate the social and political context of, of the day, this is a, a wildly unexpected move. All right, this is the kind of person who would not be expected by the religious people of the day to actually come to Jesus. As I said, this guy is in service of the, the King Herod Antipas, you know, the Tetrarch for, for Rome in, in Galilee. This is not the kind of person who would be expected Right, to, to come to Jesus. The religious of the day would not have expected this. 
And if we kind of zoom out a little bit and consider the fourth chapter of John's gospel a little bit more, it's kind of in fitting with what John's trying to tell us here because earlier in John 4, and probably what you think of when you think John 4, if you know the gospel of John, is the Samaritan woman. Again, someone very unlikely or unexpected to kind of come to Jesus. The Jews, the Samaritans, uh, didn't like each other. It's putting it lightly. And the religious of, of the day wouldn't have expected Jesus to entertain a conversation with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman, and yet he does. And she actually believes in Jesus. So we have the Samaritan woman, and as we keep running through John chapter 4, we get to our passage here, and we see this official, again, an unexpected person to come to Jesus. Why? Well, because of that saying. He supports Rome. He doesn't support, as the religious people would have said at the time, our us. He doesn't support the people of God. Now, what are we to make of that? Why is that important? Well, it takes away the ability of anyone to say, I'm just not the kind of person who could come to Jesus. You know, I'm not the kind of person who would become a Christian. Christians are a certain type of people, and that's just not me. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and you're interested you know, in the things of Christianity, but you kind of keep it at arm's length because you kind of say to yourself, look, you know, I'm, just, I'm a bit different. I'm not the kind of person who would come to Jesus. Maybe here this morning you would say to yourself, you know, I'm just not good enough. Maybe you say to yourself, well, I've got to first kind of clean myself up a little bit, deal with some of these things in my life currently before I come to Jesus. What we see here in the example is official is that we shouldn't say, I'll come to Jesus when I'm good enough. That's completely mistaken the point. We come to Jesus because we're not good enough. We don't come to Jesus when we're good enough. We come to him because we're not good enough. And if we zoom out again, there's this larger narrative at play in John's gospel that the people we would expect to receive Jesus, the religious, they have a really tough time receiving him for who he truly is. And the people who you wouldn't expect, those who at the time were considered the religious outcasts, the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, the sinners, quote-unquote, they were the ones who actually had an easier time understanding Jesus, embracing Jesus. You know, Jesus says that in the same way a doctor has no business with the healthy, but rather the sick, he says that he comes to call, not the righteous, but sinners to himself. Now, he's not saying in that verse that there are some people who are not sinners and some people who are. No, he's saying in that point there are some people who recognise their sinners and some people who don't recognise their sinners. What we see here is that it's not about coming to Jesus when you're good enough. You come to him because you're not good enough. Herod, or not Herod, the official, he knows, he's probably aware of the fact that he's you know, serving this wicked king, and yet he comes. Let me encourage you here this morning, if you're someone who thinks, I've got to clean myself up before I come to Jesus, you can't hold that position and actually read the Gospels. You come to Jesus because we're not good enough. So the first thing we see, though, here is a desperate plea of this father. He comes to Jesus and he says, Please heal my son for he is at the point of death. Now, the second thing we see here is a surprising, sorry, a powerful promise. So the question is, how will Jesus respond to this request of this official? Let's pick it up in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's quite a surprising response. When I was kind of working through this passage, you know, you've got this heartbroken father anxious about his child who's at the point of death. Now, where he is from, he's from Capernaum, and he's in Galilee here. It's, a, it's 12 or 15 miles or 24 kilometres away. So the father has, his son's about to die potentially, and he has left for this journey to come and see Jesus, potentially thinking that he might not have seen his son's final breath. 
But he's come to Jesus requesting this miracle. And what does Jesus say? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It appears that Jesus rebukes this man. That's confusing. So how do we make sense of that? Well, again, the clues are in the text itself. When he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, the word you after unless, in the Greek, that's the plural you. It's not a singular you. So yes, the question or the request comes from the official, but in answering the official, he doesn't just respond to him directly. Okay? He speaks to the crowd that is gathered. He, he responds plurally to say, unless you, if it was American, y'all, you all, okay, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So maybe it's helpful that he's not directly addressing this heartbroken father. But what does that even mean? How do we make sense of that? Well, the question is, who is in the crowd? Who is he speaking to here? Again, the clue in the text actually sits above our passage this morning. So we pick it up in verse 43, when we ask the question, well, who is he speaking to? Who is the crowd? After the two days, he departed to Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So we see here, right, there is a way in which the Galileans, Jesus' hometown people, they welcome Jesus, they receive him, and yet do not honour him. Do we see that? So you can welcome Jesus, you can receive Jesus, but do it in such a way that it's not honouring to him. And so what is going on here, right, is that these people, okay, the Galileans have, have seen, have witnessed the, the power of Jesus in the signs and wonders that he has worked. It says that they had seen him uh, do what he did at the, the feast in Jerusalem. And they're more than happy, okay, to believe in his power to work miracles. Okay, they've seen that with their own eyes. They, they embrace that. But they're unwilling, they're reluctant to embrace the, the fullness of the authority of Jesus as the authoritative Son of God, Saviour of the world. They kind of at, keep, keep Jesus at, in their heart at arm's length. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll kind of acknowledge, yes, there's, he's a miracle worker, yes, he has that power, but, but Son of God, Saviour of the world. And this guy grew up in our hometown. Really? Do you see the dynamic at play here? It's a superficial welcoming. It's a superficial embrace of, of Jesus. Yes, we, there's some excitement about his, his miracle working. But we understand, right? The human heart does not want to naturally put yourself under the authority of someone. And, and recognising or admitting that Christ has, is, Jesus is the Christ, that he is the, 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 the uh, Son of God, God in the flesh, it means coming under his authority. And so when Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe, what he's saying there is, my word is not enough. Yes, you believe in my works, but you don't believe in me. You don't believe in my claims and my word. That's what he's speaking to. Unless you believe signs, unless you see, sorry, signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the importance of that we'll see in just a second. But first, this kind of attitude of, I'll embrace some of Jesus, but not all of Jesus. It wasn't just a problem in Jesus' day, Right? During the week, uh, I had a patient, and I'm a physio, and do lots of like, long-term injury rehab, so I spend a lot of time with my patients. And I had a patient in the week, we got into a good conversation, kind of between, between sets in the gym, uh, discussing some deeper things. He knows I'm a Christian, we've spoke about it in the past, and uh, he's a middle-aged guy, he's gone through a lot the last year or two, and he's kind of questioning things. All right? So he was raised Catholic, did the Catholic thing, got married 
in the Catholic way. Then his life kind of departed from every form or semblance of Catholicism from that point. Uh, that would have been when they were 21. Now he's mid-40s. But a lot's happened for him the last two years, and he's beginning to kind of reconsider things. And uh, the first thing he had to reconsider was the existence of God. Now, he's an engineer, and for him, he's not actually considering that question anymore. He's decided that there is a God, that God exists. For him, as an engineer, when he looks into the physical universe and sees the, the laws of physics amongst other kind of scientific realities, for him, there's no other conclusion that there is design, intelligence. And for him, that speaks to the existence of God. So he's kind of settled on that one. All right, but uh, his background's in the Catholic faith. He knows I'm a Christian, so my next question is, well, what about Jesus? What do you think about him? And his response was, you know, I'm convinced that he was historical. You know, there was some person lived in the first century, in the ancient Near East, called Jesus. Of course, I'll admit that, absolutely. But the rest of it, saviour of the world, you know, God in the flesh forgiving sins, rising from the dead, miracles, that's all a bit too much. I mean, I'm comfortable with Jesus being a good teacher, comfortable with kind of some of the morality that he, that he taught, um, but that just seems a step too far. And what's happening there effectively is kind of compartmentalizing Jesus. You know, I like this compartment of Jesus, I'll take, you know, you hear this commonly, you know, I like the loving Jesus, you know, that, just that, that, that picture of him, I love that, I'll hold on to that, and I'm all for Jesus. But there is a reluctancy, reluctancy, a reluctance, not a word, reluctance to embrace the full, the whole of Jesus, the full authority of Jesus. Why? Same reason the Galileans didn't want to do that. Because in our natural state, we don't want to come under the authority of King Jesus, to bow the knee to King Jesus. We can kind of appreciate him from a distance, but not worship him as king. And that's where he is, right? And I challenge him, hey, you should read, you should read the Gospel of John. We had a big discussion about the historical reliability of the Gospels. He said to me, wouldn't it be great if we could just actually learn about what he actually did, who he actually was? I said, you know, you can. So you can. I was like, that, that's what the Gospels are. Isn't it just fiction? <laughs> These historical accounts, you should read them for yourself. And I challenge you, if you're here this morning and you haven't actually read through the Gospel accounts, there's good reasons. We can chat after service if you'd like to believe that they are reliable historical sources. You should read them and see what it has to say about the Lord Jesus before we point the finger kind of to those outside the church or those outside the faith, that dynamic of, yeah, I'll accept this part of Jesus, but I'm not too sure about the fullness of the authority of Jesus. It's not just a problem out there, but it's a problem in here, right? For us as Christians, we have the same dynamic at play in our hearts. I love that Jesus forgives me of my sin, does away with my guilt, gives me life eternal, fantastic. But then he tells me how to live, then he tells me I can't do this, that I should do this, and it can rub against me, right? And being a Christian is someone who comes and says, King Jesus, I'm under your authority. And that is not natural to the sinful human heart. And so we ought not just point the finger out there and say, why don't people accept the whole of Jesus and just accept the parts that they're comfortable with? That's at work in our own hearts, okay? We need to ask God to help us to embrace the fullness of Christ. And this Christmas, as we approach you know, the birth of Christ and celebrating Jesus, we want to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and make sure our hearts are ready to obey all that Christ says. But moving forward, so we see here Jesus responds in initially surprising, but as we kind of dig into it, it makes a bit of sense. He's speaking against the crowd of Galilee who, who yes, accept his miracle working, but fail to accept him as the authoritative son of God. They, his word's not quite enough for them. And then the official said to him again, he kind of doesn't even engage in that debate. He just says, sir, come down before my child dies. 
And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He says again, Jesus, come, heal my son. Now, a few things to see here. Notice how Jesus does the very opposite to what the official asks him to do. He says to Jesus, come. So, you know, assumedly so you can physically kind of lay hands and heal my son. And Jesus says, go. And he makes a powerful promise. He says, your son will live. Now, notice there's no actual miracle, no sign or wonder performed in that moment. Okay? There's no FaceTime. He can't call his wife back home and say, did that word work? Is our son better? All right, he's got no way of knowing if that was effective or not. There's no sign or no wonder performed in that moment. I think the context of what he just said to the Galileans, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here we have this official, all right, he, Jesus speaks a word, there's no sign or wonder, and what does it say about the official? He believes. This is a rebuke to the Galileans who won't trust in his word, only in signs and wonders, and we see this man, he receives the promise from Jesus, and he believes. Now, as we work through, we see what actually happens from this point. And you've got to remember one important thing to note. His journey, okay, he has to stay overnight and then he has to keep going. All right, so he comes to Jesus, his son's in this critical state, asks for a miracle, some weird thing about attacking the Galileans, and then he says, your son will live, and then he goes, he departs. And he has to probably walk 10K and he stays somewhere overnight. What's he thinking that night? He doesn't know how his son is. His son could be dead, but he's believing the promise that Jesus made. He's believing the power of the promise that Jesus made. And we'll soon find out how that went. Verse 51, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, he wants to make sure here, you know, is this just a natural course of events? Did things just progressively get better? So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He fact-checks, makes sure the recovery happens when Jesus spoke. But remember earlier in the passage, this condition is critical, not the kind of just sickness that, you know, you take a day off work, you're better the next day. Hey, God healed me. It's not that kind of healing, right? This guy is, this son is approaching death. And Jesus, with, an, with a word, heals him. Now, at this point in the passage, John wants us to kind of stand back and marvel at the power of Jesus. Jesus is 24 kilometers away from this son who is deathly ill. And he simply says, your son will live. And with the utterance of a word, the power to heal, the power to restore life. And sometimes I think we can be so familiar with some of these stories in the Gospels that it fails to kind of strike us as it ought to. The power. Who, who is this man? Who is this Jesus who with a word can restore life to a dying boy? What power? What authority? So the second thing we see here is this powerful promise. The third thing we see is the saving faith of the official. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. 
This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, why does John say, again, he himself believed? He's already said when Jesus said to him, go, your son will live, that he believed. So he believed then, and then he hears evidence of the healing of the son, he believes again. Because this believing is a different kind of believing than the one that was mentioned earlier. And we actually see in this passage, this kind of evolution of faith. Those two words you don't hear together very often. Evolution of faith. All right. It's a progression. Initially, this guy is going to go on a 24-kilometer journey when his son's about to die because he trusts that there's something in this Jesus who could heal his son. That's some sort of faith, right? That's some sort of belief. It's a general belief. But there's something there. Then he comes to this Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually work a miracle in front of him that he can see with his eyes. He simply puts out a promise, but he believes. There's some some trust there. There's some belief there. But when he hears of the son's healing, something happens in his heart where he believes again. And commentators are in agreement that this kind of believing is, is the kind of believing that John wants his readers to possess. Not just a general belief in Jesus' ability to work miracles, all right, his ability to perform signs and wonders, but a saving belief. A belief that Jesus, yes, a historical person, but he's more than that. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. Yes, he has been the recipient of this great act of power and miraculous uh, sign, but that wasn't the end. It led him to believe in Jesus. A saving faith. A few things we ought to note from that. Firstly, perhaps you're here this morning and you've got a sort of general belief or faith in Jesus. You know, you're at church, you know something about him, you, you like Jesus, uh, you, you want him to do good things for you in your life. It's a general faith. Maybe you like what the, what the official was like when his son was sick and he thought, there's a reputation of Jesus, there's a miracle healer, I've got some trust in him, off I go. There's some, there's some broad belief in Jesus. Perhaps you're here because you've got a friend who you've seen great change in their life and they put it down to the work of Christ in their life and so, so you're here and you're investigating. To be a Christian seems to have some broad, non-specific belief about Jesus. To be a Christian means to have a biblical understanding of the identity of Jesus. It's to to recognise who Jesus actually is, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the saviour of the world, and to respond to him rightly. How do you know that you're a a real Christian? Because you recognise that you're a sinner and you recognise that Jesus is your saviour. It's not just about what Christ can do for you in your life but that he has done something for you at the cross. He has rescued you. He has saved you. So let me encourage you this morning, if you're here and you've got a kind of general faith in Jesus, to dig into who Jesus actually is and to embrace him in the fullness of his authority, to to approach him rightly and come under his authority, bow the knee to King Jesus. Now, secondly, maybe you're here this morning and you're someone who's, who's experienced God's power at work in your life. You know, if you, you, you can't put it down to anything else, if you've had some healing, you've had some expression of God's power in your life that you go, that was the Lord. But if you're honest, that might have been a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, now you're not really following the Lord. You're thankful to him for what he's done. But see, the point here, this official didn't just go, thanks for healing my son, and then got on with his business. No, he believed in Jesus. So he became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of him. There's almost a sense in which 
If you've received God's miraculous power in your life in some, some big way, but haven't come to a, a full relationship with Jesus, it's a waste. The, the goal is to become a follower of Jesus. The goal is to know him and relate to him rightly. That is, that's the goal. And so we see here in this official a saving faith. And the last thing we want to see in this passage as well is that evidence of saving faith is a, is a sharing faith. All right? So he experiences Jesus, experiences his authority over, over death, to, to, to give life. And what does he do? He clearly tells his household. His ha- whole household believes. And not a sermon on baptism, we won't go there. But he clearly says something, right? He's telling people about what Jesus has done. You know, we go on about here at Sydney Hill, we want to know Jesus and make Jesus known. But that implies something. We've got to open our mouths and talk to people about what Jesus has done. We should heed the example of the official who experienced Jesus' redemptive work in his life and he wants to tell people. His household believes. Let me encourage you this morning, if you've grown weary in evangelism and it feels scary and you're tired from the thought of having to share Jesus with friends, family, colleagues, you know, it's Christmas time, so you hear people at the front here say, hey, it's an easy invite, let's go, let's tell people about Jesus, and you sit there and think, I feel guilty, I feel condemned, this is tough. If you're growing weary in evangelism, let me just remind you, do you think that this was hard for the official? Yeah, at one level, but he's just thinking about, this is amazing, <laughs> this is amazing what has happened, All right, that Jesus has healed my son, he's the authority, with a word, he healed my son. He's just so enamored by the beauty and the, the, the power of Christ that he can't not tell people. And so when we feel weary in evangelism, let's just remind ourselves of the Jesus whom we worship, the Jesus whom we serve. The one with a word has the power and authority to give life. The more we're afraid of evangelism, it's a reminder to our hearts, we need to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. So we know Jesus and we spend time reflecting on him, then we want to make him known. So three things we see in this passage, a desperate plea, a powerful promise, and a saving faith. Now, what are we to make of all of this? This is the second sign we see in the final verse, and a sign signifies something. So what does it teach us about Jesus? Well, pretty simply, he has authority and power to give life, which is amazing, but pretty simple to understand, right? That's the, this is what the second sign is all about, his ability to give life. But perhaps you're here this morning and you think, awesome, so what does that have to do with me? What impact does that have on my life? Well, we see as Jesus kind of, kind of moves through the rest of his life, uh, we see this one. When I first became a Christian, I kind of really sort of read the gospel accounts, really understood the Christian story. It's something quite odd. You've got this guy who has power to give life, authority over life and death, who at 30 or 33, he dies himself. What's, what's going on there? Surely he could use his authority, use his power to, to prevent that from happening. So what What's going on at the cross, all right, when Jesus is crucified? I mean, Jesus says in, in John 10 that no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. So what's going on at the cross? You see, Jesus knows there is a kind of life that he can give to people, but he can only give that life to people if he first dies himself. So there is a condition that's even more critical than that which the son found himself in nearing physical death. The Bible says that the condition that we find ourselves in as sinful human sin is even more critical. So we hear the story of this son who's about to die. I think that is shocking. Well, the Bible says that's nothing on our spiritual state when it comes to our relationship with God. We need healing from a greater sickness, sin. 
And Jesus knows the only way to give us life, not just life that will kind of restore us here, but life beyond the grave. There's only one way he can give us that kind of life, and that is by giving up his own life. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And so on the cross, Jesus didn't have to. He could have held on to his life, but he laid down his life for the sake of sinners like you and I, bearing the penalty of sin on the cross so sin no longer had claim on him. He is raised to life again and now extends life, what he calls eternal life, to those who would trust and those who would believe in him. Now, yes, eternal life means life beyond the grave. Okay, when, you become, when you become a Christian, you believe in him. That means there is hope that we will live again in resurrection life with Jesus. But it would be an error to think that eternal life only begins once you die. Because in John 17, Jesus says that eternal life begins now. There is a resurrection life that happens right now. If you become a Christian, Ephesians 2, Paul would say that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has made you alive again in the Lord Jesus, being united to Christ. When we look at the story of Lazarus in John 11, a bit later in John's Gospel, this dead person, being dead for four days, and again, Jesus just speaks, says, live, come, come out, and there he goes. And that's the story of every single Christian. We, in our natural state, are spiritually dead. All right? We're not even just dying, we're dead. Unable to honour the Lord, unable to worship him, live for him. And God in his grace, by the power of his spirit, Jesus says, live, and there's an awakening in our heart. This resurrection life begins not just after we die, but begins now. And so this second sign, it shows us that Jesus has authority over life. He breathes new life. He does this by dying on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, and now extends that promise of eternal life for all who would believe. I'll call a band up. Let me just finish with this. Perhaps here this morning, and in the same way when Jesus extended that promise to the official, your son will live. Go, your son will live. In the sense in which that's very hard to believe, right? You hear that promise, and, geez, that's hard to believe. And maybe you're here this morning, and you hear me talking about this stuff, you know, come to Jesus, your sins can be forgiven, you get a new, a new life, a newness of life that begins now and, and kind of continues up into eternity. You can have your guilt cleansed. You hear all that and you go, geez, that sounds good. That's hard to believe. Take encouragement from what we've seen here this morning. If this Jesus can restore life, has authority over life, uh, to this sick boy, right, if he can go to the cross, die and be raised to life again, he can forgive us of our sin, he can make us new, and he can lead us to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the power and authority of Jesus. May, Lord, we not just settle uh, with what we're comfortable when it comes to who Jesus is, but may we behold his grandeur, his majesty his power Lord we are so thankful that he has authority and power to give life Lord we because of our sin are spiritually dead but in your grace you have made us alive together with him Lord we are so thankful that he his life wasn't taken from him he laid down his life for our sake and he took it back up and now extends that eternal life to all who would believe help us Lord to lay hold of that great promise this morning Jesus let me pray Amen Thank you for listening to our podcast If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.